0: Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List, the best podcast ever, we're talking about chapter 42, BYO discussion prompts today, uh, I suppose I was feeling a bit uninspired, I just couldn't think of anything really, <clears throat> and I'm putting socks on because my feet are cold, oh, I can multitask, uh, <clears throat> alright, one sock on, Intrepid says, it appears Philip is drunk on self-delusion. Maybe we need that to keep us going sometimes. I was wildly deluded that my book would be popular and it drove me to finish the first draft. I'm curious what people think of Cromshaw. I don't see his appeal myself. Edit on the same word. Oh, spelling. Okay. Um, well, more um, interesting to me, Tripper is that you finished a book. You finished a book. Hang on left sock left sock on alright I'm all socked up that's all my feet socked you finished a book that's really cool is it out can we see it and um, what can you tell us about it we'd love to know Um, drop it into today's discussion into the new discussion chapter 43 if it's out and available um, put a link in we'll have a look I'm Norwegian says one plus egg mention. What are we up to now, eight? Jeez, he loves an egg. Um, a video of the dancer that Philip likens to the hairstyle of the young woman. Okay, it's Chloe de Morode. Okay, she's just doing a little dance. 1900, this footage is from little curtsies here and there she looks quite pretty she looks much better in actual pictures and here's a link to her picture of her face oh yeah she's really pretty uh who does she look like i don't even know pretty though she looks like a pretty french girl this isn't related to the book in any way, but I watched 1997 adaptation of Anna Karenina today. I haven't watched the 2012 one yet, but I went with the 97 one for the simple reason of the historical dress being accurate. The 2012 one is apparently terrible in that department. Oh, it's really disappointing that they'd mess that up, right? Like, it's a historical piece. It's historical fiction, almost. That's the one thing you got to get right. The dress, the settings, the scenery... Uh, not normally something I'd care about, but I tried to watch the Netflix Anola Holmes movie. At one point, the main character self-righteously breaks the fourth wall and quips to the audience about corsets being nothing more than a symbol of oppression. I remembered that years ago, I saw a video where a historical dress YouTuber went into great detail about corsets and our modern misconceptions of it. Apparently, they were pretty great. Anyways, I fell deeper into the historical dress YouTube rabbit hole, and at one point, someone mentioned how accurate the 97 version of Anna Karenina was. It was a pretty good movie. Except that most of the major events felt hollow. I'm assuming you're talking now about 1997 Anna Karenina and not Enola Holmes. Two hours and still it felt like it was just... It just jumped from thing to thing trying to fit it all in. But the acting, casting and costumes were great. Great way to get better at visualising the novels I read from the era. Shockingly, the book was better. Wow, shocker. Um, I really liked the BBC War and Peace adaptation. I haven't watched any Anna Karenina adaptations yet, but I think I might check out the 97 one if it's a bit more accurate. Um, And, I mean, there's a lot of book to fit into one film, isn't it? I think a miniseries works better. Because even with the War and Peace miniseries, I mean, War and Peace is a big book, but you still feel pretty satisfied that everything's in there. I mean, I know a lot is cut out, but, you know, it's like... uh, how much do you miss... Um... Oh, come on, I can't even think of his name. I'm trying to think of the goblin in Harry Potter that was completely removed from the film. He's not a goblin. He's a, um... Oh, I can't even think of what he is. Those little mischievous guys. He's a... I want to say Jeeves, but it's, no, it's not Jeeves. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. It's one of those details that was left out of the films that you don't really miss. It's like, eh, we can live without that guy. Um... Even better, there's a Russian War and Peace film that was made, I think it made in the 60s or 70s, 60s I think, late 60s. Uh, and it is it's really long. I think it's a three-part movie. Uh, and sorry, that's my phone. And um the budget on it was just enormous. You know, it was Russia's attempt to compete with Hollywood. And you watch it and it looks modern. It looks so impressive. The scale of some of the the shots that they've put together of the war, like these aerial views of whole armies coming together like something out of Lord of the Rings. But it was shot in the 60s and you just think, how did they do this? Uh, Really, really cool uh, adaptation of War and Peace. Um, I've only seen little bits of it. I actually downloaded it, but the there was a problem with the audio. Um, it was like dubbed, but it was dubbed weirdly, where there was like three voices all dubbing the same thing at the same time. I don't know what was going on with it. It didn't really work, but I skimmed through and just looked at some of the cinematography, and it was absolutely beautiful. Uh, Pony, Pony, sorry, Pony Salvage 22... Says he is that a new name? Welcome if you are new here. He had pondered whether he loved liquor because it made him talk or whether he loved conversation because it made him thirsty. I love how often cleverly written phrases appear in this text. The last line tells me that Philip is infatuated with the idea of what France is, but nevertheless, I root for him living intoxicated and truly happy for a while. Yeah, good times ahead, I think. You know, this is very much. Hemingway's Paris it was a it was a it was a movable feast you know it was cafes at night dance here drink there have a coffee there meeting up with artists here and there and everywhere and it was easy mode like I don't (laughs) I know that they were just about to enter war and then you know in the 20s Hemingway's it was just between major world wars before it it was um you know the swing in 20s we are about to hit a pretty major depression though after that so you know um it's kind of rose tinted glasses to just say how beautiful and awesome everything was back then but i don't know there's stories about like hemingway or these artists who while they were writing their great novel you know they they worked for a newspaper as a journalist and wrote an article here and there and It was like they'd sell an article and that would fund them for the next, you know, few months of traveling around Europe and, you know, doing whatever they wanted, basically staying wherever they wanted. And it was just, you just think, really, like if you wrote an article today, you might be able to get dinner tonight, (laughs) maybe, you know, depending on if there's any specials going. Um, (laughs) So, I don't know, I just think, God they, they kind of had it easy financially but maybe i'm being really naive maybe um anyway let's read the next chapter chapter 43 goes like this on tuesdays and fridays masters spent the morning at amitrano's criticizing the work done it's really raining heavily right now by the way if there's a lot of static noise in the background it's because it's pouring down with rain at my house uh, criticizing the work done. In France the painter earns little unless he paints portraits and is patronized by rich Americans and men of reputation are glad to increase their incomes by spending two or three hours once a week at one of the numerous studios where art is taught. Tuesday was the day upon which Michel Roland came to Amitranos. He was an elderly man with a white beard and a florid complexion, and who had painted a number of decorations for the state, but these were an object of derision to the students he instructed. He was a despicable Ah oh, wait, sorry, he wasn't despicable. He was a disciple of the Ingress of Ingress, impervious to the progress of art and angrily impatient with that Tart de Fouqueurs, whose name were Manet, Degas, Monet, and Sisley. But he was an excellent teacher, helpful, polite, and encouraging. that, On the other hand, who visited the studio on Fridays was a difficult man to get on with. He was a small, shriveled person with bad teeth and bilious air, an untidy grey beard and savage eyes. His voice was high and his tone sarcastic. He had pictures bought by the Luxembourg and at 25 looked forward to a great career, but his talent was due to youth rather than to personality. And for 20 years he had done nothing but repeat the landscape which had brought him early success. When he was reproached with monotony, he answered, Corot only painted one thing. Why shouldn't I? He was envious of everyone else's success and had a peculiar personal loathing of the Impressionists, for he looked upon his own failure as due to the mad fashion which had attracted the public sale bette to their works. The genial disdain of Michel Rowland, who called them impostors, was answered by him with a vituperation of which... Crapule and Canali were the least violent items. He amused himself with abuse of their private lives and with sardonic humor, with blasphemous and obscene detail, attacked the legitimacy of their births and the purity of their conjugal relations. He used an oriental imagery and an oriental emphasis to accentuate his ribald scorn. Nor did he conceal his contempt for the students whose work he examined. By them he was hated and feared the women by his brutal sarcasm he reduced often to tears which again aroused his ridicule and he remained at the studio notwithstanding the protests of those who suffered too bitterly from his attacks because there could be no doubt that he was one of the best masters in Paris sometimes the old model who kept the school ventured to remonstrate with him but his expostulations quickly gave way before the violent insolence of the painter and to abject apologies it was Foynet whom, "'with whom Philip first came in contact. "'He was already in the studio when Philip arrived. "'He went round from easel to easel with Mrs. Otter, the maiserie, "'by his side to interpret his remarks for the benefit of those who could not understand French. "'Fanny Price, sitting next to Philip, was working feverishly. "'Her face was sallow with nervousness. "'And every now and then she stopped to wipe her hands on her blouse, "'for they were hot with anxiety.' Suddenly she turned to Philip with an anxious look, which she tried to hide by a sullen frown. "'Do you think it's good?' she asked, nodding at her drawing. Philip got up and looked at it. He was astounded. He felt she must have no eye at all. The thing was hopelessly out of drawing. "'I wish I could draw half as well myself,' he answered. "'You can't expect to. You've only just come. It's a bit too much to expect that you should draw as well as I do. I've been here two years.' Fanny Price puzzled Philip. Her conceit was stupendous. Philip had already discovered that everyone in the studio cordially disliked her, and it was no wonder, for she seemed to go out of her way to wound people. I complained to Mrs. Otter about Fognette, she said now. The last two weeks he hasn't looked at my drawings. He spends about half an hour on Mrs. Otter because she's the maizierie. Ma- Maisier. After all, I pay as much as anybody else, and I suppose my money's as good as theirs. I don't see why I shouldn't get as much attention as anybody else. She took up her charcoal again, but in a moment put it down with a groan. I can't do it any more now. I'm so frightfully nervous. She looked at Foynette, who was coming towards them with Mrs. Otter, and Mrs. Otter's meek, mediocre, and self-satisfied wore an air of importance. Foynette sat down at the easel of an untidy little Englishwoman called Ruth Chalice. She had the fine black eyes, languid but passionate, and thin face, ascetic but sensual, the skin like old ivory which, under the influence of Burne jones were cultivated at that time by young ladies in Chelsea. Foynus seemed in a pleased, pleasant mood. He did not say much to her, but with quick, determined strokes of her charcoal pointed out her errors. Miss Chalice beamed with pleasure when he rose— he came to Clutton, and by this time Philip was nervous too. But Mrs. Otter had promised to make things easy for him. Foinet stood for a moment in front of Clutton's work, biting his thumb, th- thumb, thumb, <laughs> biting his thumb silently. Then, absent-mindedly, spat out upon the canvas the little piece of skin which he had bitten off. Ugh. That's a fine line, he said at last, indicating with his thumb that what pleased him. You're beginning to learn to draw. Clutton did not answer, but looked at the master with his usual air of sardonic indifference to the world's opinion. I'm better, I'm beginning to think you have at least a trace of talent. Mrs. Otter, who did not like Clutton, pursed her lips. She did not see anything out of the way in his work. Foynette sat down and went into technical details. Mrs. Otter grew rather tired of standing. Clutton did not say anything, but nodded now and then, and Foynette felt with satisfaction that he grasped what he said and the reasons of it. Most of them listened to him, but it was clear they never understood. Then Foynette got up and came to Philip. He only arrived two days ago, Mrs. Otter hurried to explain. He's a beginner. He's never studied before. "'Casse vous, said the master said. "'One sees that.' He passed on, and Mrs. Otter murmured, murmured to him, "'This is the young lady I told you about.' He looked at her as though she were some repulsive animal, and his voice grew more rasping. It appears that you do not think I pay enough attention to you. You have been complaining to the maiserie. Well, show me this work to which you wish me to give attention. Fanny Price, colored. The blood under her unhealthy skin seemed to be of a strange purple. Without answering, she pointed to the drawing on which she had been at work since the beginning of the week. Fournier sat down. Well, what do you wish me to say to you? Do you wish me to tell you that it's good— it isn't. Do you wish me to tell you it is well drawn? It isn't. Do you wish me to t- say it has merit? It hasn't. Do you wish me to show you what is wrong with you? With what is wrong with it? It is all wrong. Do you wish me to tell you what to do with it? Tear it up. Are you satisfied now? Miss Price became very white she was furious because he had said all this before Mrs Otter though she had been in France so long and could understand French well enough she could hardly speak two words. He's got no right to treat me like that. My money's as good as anyone else's. I pay him to teach me. Not. He's not. That's not teaching me. What does she say? What does she say? Asked Foinet. Oh, what does she say? What does she say? Asked Foinet. Mrs. Otter hesitated to translate, and Miss Price repeated in ex- inexorable French, "Je vous paye pour me apprendre." His eyes flashed with rage. His ha- he raised his voice and shook his fist. "'Mais nom de Dieu? I can't teach you. I could more easily teach a camel.' He turned to Mrs. Otter. "'Ask her does she do this for amusement, or does she expect to earn money by it?' "'I'm going to earn my living as an artist,' Miss Price answered. "'Then it is my duty to tell you that you are wasting your time. I would not matter. It would not matter that you have no talent. Talent does not run about the streets in these days. Do you have not the beginning of an apti- of an aptitude?' how long have you been here a child of five after two lessons would draw better than you i only say one thing to you give up this hopeless attempt you are more likely to earn your living as a bon etou ferry than as a painter look he seized a piece of charcoal and broke it as he applied it to the paper he cursed and with the stomp drew great firm lines he drew rapidly and spoke at the same time spitting out the words with venom look at those arms are not the same length. That knee, it's grotesque. I tell you, a child of five. You see, she's not standing on her legs, that foot. With each word, the angry pencil made a mark, and in a moment, the drawing upon which Fanny Price had spent so much time and eager trouble was unrecognizable, a confusion of lines and smudges. At last, he flung down the charcoal and stood up. Take my advice, mademoiselle. Try dressmaking. He looked at his watch. It's twelve. A la semaine prochaine, mesures. Miss Price gathered up her things slowly; Philip waited behind after the others to say to her something consolatory; he could think of nothing but, "I say I'm awfully sorry; what a beast that man is!" She turned on him, savagely. "Is that what you're waiting about for? When I want your sympathy, I'll ask for it. Please get out of my way." She walked past him out of the studio, and Philip, with a shrug of the shoulders, limped along to Gravier's for luncheon. "It served her right," said Lawson when Philip told him what had happened tempered slut. Lawson was very sensitive to criticism, and in order to avoid it, never went to the studio when Foynette was coming. "'I don't want other people's opinion of my work,' he said. "'I know myself if it's good or bad.' "'You mean you don't want other people's bad opinion of your work?' answered Clutton dryly. In the afternoon, Philip thought he would go to the Luxembourg to see the pictures, and walking through the garden, he saw Fanny Price sitting in her accustomed seat. He was sore at the rudeness with which she had met. His well-meant attempt to say something pleasant, he passed as though he had not caught sight of her. But she got up at once and came towards him. "'Are you trying to cut me?' she said. "'No, of course not. I thought perhaps you didn't want to be spoken to. Where are you going?' "'I wanted to have a look at the Manet. I've heard so much about it.' "'Would you like me to come with you? I know the Luxembourg rather well. I could show you one or two good things.' He understood that, unable to bring himself to apologise directly, she made this offer as amends. It's awfully kind of you. I should like it very much. You needn't say yes if you'd rather go alone, she said suspiciously. I wouldn't. They walked towards the gallery. Kale Boat's collection had lately been placed on view, and the student, for the first time, had the opportunity to examine at his ease the works of the Impressionists. Till then it had been possible to see them only at a r- Durand Ruel's shop in Rue Lafitte, and the dealer, unlike his fellow fellows in England, who adopt towards the painter an attitude of superiority, was always pleased to show the shabbiest student whatever he wanted to see, or at his private house to which it was not difficult to get a card of admission on Tuesdays, and where you might see pictures of worldwide reputation. Miss Price led Philip straight up to Manette's Olympia. He looked at it in astonished silence. Do you like it? asked Miss Price. I don't know, he answered helplessly. You can take it from me that it's the best thing in the gallery except perhaps Whistler's portrait of his mother. She gave him a certain time to contemplate the masterpiece and then took him to a picture representing a railway station. Look, here's a run, eh? she said. It's the Gare Saint-Lazare. But the railway lines aren't parallel, said Philip. What does that matter? she asked with a haughty air. Philip felt ashamed of himself. Fanny Price had picked up the glib chatter of the studios and had not no difficulty in impressing Philip with the extent of her knowledge. She proceeded to explain the pictures to him superciliously, but not without insight, and showed him what the painters had attempted and what he must look for. She talked with much gesticulation of the thumb, and Philip, to whom all she said was new, listened with profound but bewildered interest. Till now he had worshipped Watts and Burne jones the pretty colour of the first, the affected drawing of the second, had entirely satisfied his ascetic sensibilities. Their vague idealism and suspicion of a philosophical idea which underlay the titles they gave their pictures accorded very well with the functions of art, as from his diligent perusal of Ruskin he understood it. But here was something quite different. Here was no moral appeal and the contemplation of these works could help no one to plead a purer and a higher life. He was puzzled. At last, he said, You know, I'm simply dead. I don't think I can absorb anything more profitably. Let's go and sit down on one of the benches. It's better not to take too much time, too much, sorry. It's better not to take too much art at a time, Miss Price answered. When they got outside, he thanked her warmly for the trouble she had taken. Oh, that's all right, she said a little ungraciously. I do it because I enjoy it. "'We'll go to the Louvre tomorrow if you like, "'and then I'll take you to the Durand-Rales. "'You are really awfully good to me. "'You don't think me such a beast as the most of them do?' "'I don't,' he smiled. "'They think they'll drive me away from the studio, but they won't. "'I shall stay there just exactly as long as it suits me.' "'All that this morning. It was Lucy Otter's doing. I know it was. She always has hated me. "'She thought after that I'd take myself off. I dare say she'd like me to go. "'She's afraid I know too much about her.'" Miss Price told him a long, involved story which made out that Mrs. Otterman, a humdrum and respectable little person, had scabrous intrigues. Then she talked of Ruth Chellis, the girl from whom Foynette had praised that morning. She's been with every one of the fellows at the studio. She's nothing better than a streetwalker, and she's dirty. She hasn't had a bath for a month, I know it for a fact. Philip listened uncomfortably. He had heard already that various rumours were in circulation about Miss Chellis, but it was ridiculous to suppose that Mrs. Otter, living with her mother, was anything but rigidly virtuous. The woman, walking by his side with the malignant lying, positively horrified him. I don't care what they say. I shall go on just the same. I know I've got it in me. I feel I am an artist. I'd sooner kill myself than give up. Oh, I shan't be the first that all laughed at in the schools, and then he's turned out to be the only genius of the lot. Art is the only thing I care for. I'm willing to give up my whole life to it. It's only a question of sticking to it and pegging away. She found discreditable, discreditable motives for everyone, who would not take her at her own estate estimate of herself. She detested Clutton. She told Philip that his friend had no talent, really. He was just flashy and superficial. He couldn't compose a figure to save his life, and Lawson, little beast, with his red hair and his freckles, he's so afraid of Foynette that he won't let him see his work. After all, I don't funk it. Do I? I don't care what Foynette says to me. I know I am a real artist. They reached the street in which she lived. And with a sigh of relief, Philip left her. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter down. Art students, eh? Fiery lot. (laughs) Have your say about it over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you tomorrow.